Hello and welcome back to Track Chat with Andrew and Beth. This week we've been thrown quite the curveball. We were expecting to be chatting to you last week about the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix in Imola, but as I'm sure plenty of you will have seen online, that area of Italy has been subjected to some pretty major flooding, with F1 taking the decision to cancel the Grand Prix. That announcement came out on Wednesday lunchtime last week, and for us it's currently the Friday evening, where it looks like things are starting to look a little bit better. We've seen photos today of Yuki Tsunoda helping to clear up parts of Faenza, where the Alphatari factory is located, but more than that, we just can't really say at the moment. Uh, regardless, we would both like to offer our condolences to everyone in Italy affected by the floods, and while we might be disappointed there wasn't a Grand Prix last weekend, I think we're both in agreement that cancelling the race was absolutely the correct decision. Now, just on a final note before we get into the main episode, the eagle-eyed amongst you might have noticed that our previous episode, building up to the Miami Grand Prix, actually came out after the race weekend. Uh, that was because one of us here decided it would be a good idea to go on holiday to Edinburgh for the weekend and forgot to check that their audio for the podcast had uploaded before they left. And uh, that person was me. So uh, apologies to you all for your delayed Miami preview. But without out of the way, let's get back to this week's show. And um, we're taking a quick look back at Miami and looking ahead to what I'm still going to call round seven, where F1 comes back to the streets of the Principality as we reach what F1 calls its crown jewel at Monaco. And in between, we'll be discussing the ever growing size of the calendar in Formula One. Um, now, somehow I managed to get through all of that without saying something wrong. So please, Beth, take it away. Uh, well, if we're starting on the review of Miami, for me, honestly, I've just had to remind myself of what happened before we started recording. I didn't think it was a particularly memorable race, and it's not swayed my opinion on the Miami Grand Prix at all. So I didn't find it entertaining last time out, and I didn't find it entertaining this time out. I think it was a bit of a saving grace uh, that Verstappen started where he started and had a bit of a race ahead of him. But even that, I think it was inevitable and nothing crazy unpredictable not that something unpredictable has to happen every race um we we've talked about how it should be sport first and show second so it's not so much that it's more just even the layout of the track and it just doesn't seem to create much drama yeah it, it was much as we predicted really for most of the race we sort of said that it wasn't going to be our favorite we weren't massively looking forward to it and although we didn't hate miami we certainly weren't excited for it and it just seems to have been exactly that. Um, I saw a lot of things online about people talking about how this race had more overtakes than any of the rest of the ones this year but my argument is that Verstappen made most of those coming from an out of position position from qualifying. Um, I, I would say the most exciting thing that happened in Miami was qualifying um, and not because of the track but because of the weather which seems to be a theme this week but yeah I, I think you know the weather over the weekend made qualifying, I'm going to say interesting, it was interesting. Over one lap, maybe Miami is fine. I just didn't really feel it over um, over a full race distance. And as, as soon as um, Max started making those positions up um, from the start of the race, I think he'd passed Alonso by lap 14 or something. I, like from then on, I, I, we knew that he was, I knew he was going to win. Um, I don't think Perez really had it. I think it's interesting, isn't it, how it's not necessarily a fact that lots of overtakes will make for a good race. Um, there seems to be more to it than that. And yeah, Miami for me just lacks that feeling that tracks like Spa and Silverstone and other tracks have. And then I think as well, something that really irritates me and takes away a bit of the enjoyment is just some of what goes on at Miami before the race begins and after the race it just it doesn't feel very F1 to me and it feels like it's taking the championship in a very weird direction. I know we've already had this massive chat last episode about um, the addition of street tracks to F1 and maybe the Americanization of F1. And again, just to reiterate, I absolutely love Circuit of the Americas and it's nothing to do with an American track. It's just to do with this unnecessary showmanship that came before Miami specifically. Yeah, I saw the um, where they brought all the drivers out one by one and announced them very American style. It didn't do anything for me. It I feel like it annoyed the drivers and didn't it absolutely didn't add anything to the weekend. Um, 
I, I don't really see what the point in having that there mm. was. Yeah, it like you say, it was just the Americanization of F one, and I, I think, I think Alonso made a really good point over that weekend where he said, "Why are the fans in Miami getting something that the other fans aren't? The experience across every Grand Prix should be consistent and the same." So you don't have to go, oh, well, maybe I'll go to Spain. Oh, but actually I'm going to go to Miami because they do the walking out into the track and announcing the drivers, and I really want to see that, if you did want to see that. I feel like if one race is going to have it, every race needs to have it. Yeah, it it just felt a little unnecessary. And whether it, it could you even argue it played to the crowd? I'm not sure it did because there were so many complaints about it afterwards. I've not seen a single person say they enjoyed that. And you're right that it annoyed the drivers as well. A lot of them were very outspoken after the race and said that it just felt a bit unnecessary. Some of them were more into it. Like I think Lewis Hamilton said he thought it was a bit of fun, but a lot of the drivers were saying it took a lot of their concentration up right as not far from the lights going out and they're trying to get in the zone and then they're being paraded out like they're about to start a wrestling match or something. It must have been quite difficult as well because they all went out in their race overalls on a hot day. It was hot on that Sunday. It was a very hot day. To just be standing around in race overalls for no reason, Mm. you're already starting to lose some of those fluids that you're going to need when it comes to the race. Yeah, yeah. All just a, a very odd decision. But that's my little ramble on the weird showmanship beforehand. But in terms of the actual race, I think... The driver who stood out the most for all the wrong reasons was again De Vries, and it's just such a unhappy start to his like true F1 career. Obviously, he had that great outing when he subbed in for Williams, but so far in 2023, it's been brutal for him, hasn't it? And I think the biggest problem is that, like looking back, I I think that he's had probably a comparable season to Sonoda's first season in in that AlphaTauri. The problem is, now there's a, a viable alternative to De Vries if he doesn't get better. At the time when, when Sonoda joined AlphaTauri, that, that was it. That was, that was their best option at the time. Without that, you know, like now that they've got a better option, the pressure's more on him, I think, and you can see it already from a fan perspective. Fans are watching what Daniel Ricciardo is doing because they are hoping if De Vries keeps being bad, they're going to see Ricciardo back in that seat. And the rumours keep going and they keep going. And and eventually, those rumours bring on a life of their own and have the potential to create something. You know, Red Bull is a very marketing-driven company. If they see the amount of fans going, oh, God, we're going to get Ricciardo back. This is great. This is great. This is great. We're going to get rid of De Vries. He's had an awful start. They might start thinking, actually, there's a, there's a lot of marketing potential here and putting them back in, and he can't do any worse than we've already got. Whereas, like, Sonoda was allowed that really three seasons now of time to learn and grow and he crashed and made mistakes and and did things wrong and didn't have a great start to his career in a way that I'm not sure De Vries has time to do. Mm. I think you're absolutely right about Red Bull, I would say in particular the most marketing driven team on the grid potentially. Um, maybe you could add McLaren to that, who knows. But thinking about whether Ricardo will come back in. I know there's always rumours in F1 about things that never even end up coming to fruition. Like there's rumours every year that Hamilton will go to Ferrari and just mad things that never end up happening. Um, quote me on that when Hamilton goes to Ferrari next year, Andrew. Um... Oh, well, <laughs> if that happens, I will actually be amazed. <laughs> Pass out. Um, but I think there is a chance there with that move because. Even things we're seeing like um, Ricardo has had a seat fit with AlphaTauri and I know again that might be because solely because he's doing you know a free practice session or he's doing some testing for them or whatever it is. But regardless, it's going to put the idea into people's heads, into fans' heads, and it might even put the idea into Devries' head. And we've seen the power that psychology can have on a driver. All you have to do is look at Gasly and his brief stint with. Red Bull um, and how once the rumours started circulating it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy it just affected him more and more and can looking back now at his body posture in all the media interviews and stuff it was just 
going more and more in on himself, all these rumours circulating, self-fulfilling prophecy, and yeah, he ended up out of the seat, and then we saw how much his performance improved once those rumours were taken away, so there's a psychological impact to all this too, on De Vries. And Red Bull seems to have a history of it, you know, Daniel Kvyat getting replaced by Max, then um, Brandon Hartley getting booted out halfway through the season. These things seem to keep happening. So no matter how much they tell that driver, don't worry, you've got this seat for the year. If they decide he doesn't, he's not going to have it anymore, they have a history of just getting rid of those drivers. Absolutely. I think any team ultimately makes um, what can be quite brutal calls when it comes to who's going to be in their seat. But Red Bull haven't got a problem doing it mid-season. They've done it in the past, so will they do it again? And I think it shows that that relationship between the team and drivers needs to change a bit because AlphaTauri and Red Bull in general have cycled through quite a few drivers in the last year or the last few years. And if you look at where Alex Albon is now and how he's doing, he's he's having a much better time. He looks visibly more relaxed. He's leading that team at Williams in a way that he just never got the chance to do at Red Bull because there was so much pressure on him to perform every single day that he never he never got a chance to actually look at what was wrong. Yeah, it's a different environment to other teams, it would look like. But then you've got the flip side of the coin where a lot of people would say, well, yeah, but look at how they're doing. And top performances are, come from the drivers that can cope with that kind of pressure. So there's a flip side to the argument and stuff. But I do think that Red Bull do have a reputation for being a bit brutal when it comes to their drivers. I guess time... And you're right, the... The drivers that have shown that they can cope with that pressure have gone all the way, or as close to it as you can. Daniel Ricciardo is a race winner. Uh, Sebastian Vettel is a four-time world champion. Max Verstappen's a two-time, looking like three-time world champion. The ones that can cope do go far, but if one in ten can cope, is that a good enough ratio? Mm. Well, I think it says pretty much everything that needs to be said about Miami, the fact that we have focused mainly on De Vries and the drama at Red Bull there in our race roundup, but I think that's not really one for the history books, that race. Definitely not. Definitely not. It was it was just a race, you know, we were talking just before we started the podcast, and I said, um, I actually forgot that Miami was the last race. Genuinely in my head, I, I'd been thinking for the last week, the last race that I watched was Baku. Totally forgot Miami even happened. Until I looked at the calendar. Yeah, says it all. Says it all. But anyway, I think that brings us to the end of the recap on Miami, really. Not much else to say from our point of view. So what we've chosen to focus on as our main topic this week is another big talking point in F1 at the moment, which is the size and the nature in general of the championship calendar, which seems to just keep growing year after year. If you include Imola, which obviously has been at the very least postponed, there's 23 races in the calendar this year, making it the longest in F1 history. Not only that, it's not only extremely long, but it's very compact, which has been highlighted by this speculation surrounding Imola and whether or not we'll be able to reschedule it. Nothing's confirmed, but it shows there's not much wiggle room at all at the moment. Yeah, I, I really don't feel like having more F1 races has made F1 better. It's just made it a bigger, less flexible beast. Um, I, when I started watching, which would have been 2012, 11, 12, 13-ish was when I started getting into F1, that was a 18 or 19 race calendar. And even then, I remember people talking about it saying, this is a lot of races. It's a lot of pressure on all the teams and all the staff. Um, and I think arguably one of the best seasons we've had recently was the 2020 season where it was thrown together at the last minute after COVID. They had 17 races, and six of those were on the same track or a variation of that same track, which was the Sakia on the outer ring and Bahrain Grand Prix on the normal track, which we had due to COVID. Um, so I, I just I don't think more races have made F1 better in value. It's obviously made it better financially because they can get more ticket sales, get more promoters to have races. It works out better for F1, but 
I don't know if it comes off better for the for the fans or better for the racing or better for the drivers. Mm. Um, I keep hearing stories of Max Verstappen saying that if the if the calendar keeps getting longer, he's he's thinking about leaving. He won't do it for that much longer because he actually wants to live a life outside of F one and doing 22, 23 races a year is an extortionate amount, really. There's 52 weekends in a year. If you're spending 23 of them actually racing, how many other weekends are you spending flying around to those races? You know, how much time do you actually spend at home? Mm. I think you're right. I think there's so many things to consider from the impact on the drivers and the teams to the actual logistics of flying the whole thing around the world. But let's start with kind of the impact on the teams and drivers. So there's there's all this talk, is it fair on them? Is it too much? And I know that a lot of people would maybe argue that's quite a privileged problem. But jet setting around the world to 23 different locations, like you said, with very little time at home. And sometimes there's four races on the trot, four weeks in a row in four different countries. So I'm not sure that is fair. No, I don't think it is either. I think what people forget is they turn on their TV at the same time every weekend and just see an F1 race happen. But what you're not seeing in the background is the teams, all the personnel who are building up the facility, having the race weekend, building it all back down, shipping it off, then they're getting a flight. I mean, if you've ever done a long-haul flight to America or Australia or anywhere like that, you'll know how bad the jet lag is. Imagine having that flight and then immediately starting to work for four days as soon as your flight's finished sorry as soon as your work's finished you're back on the next flight to get another round of that jet lag to do more work the next weekend to then get on another flight to do that again and get more jet lag and you do that four weekends in a row and then you finally might get a flight home where you might have a week before you fly off again to the next race mm. I don't find that fair on the teams at all. And I think they're going to start getting to the point, if they're not already there now, where they're going to have to have like an A team and a B team for personnel going to races because it's just not sustainable on like physically and mentally on on the staff to be sending them that far around the world with such little breaks in between. Yeah, it must be extremely draining. Anyone who's experienced burnout, I mean, it sounds like burnout times 100. Um, And I think... Like you said, that when people don't think about what's going on behind the scenes, it isn't just the drivers. And if you are someone who would argue that it's a privileged problem and they're being paid a lot of money to do it, I'm still I'm not sure I agree with that anyway because they're athletes and they need to look after their bodies and recover in between races and things like that. But even if you staunchly believe they're being paid loads of money and if they don't want to do it, they have to do it. They don't have to do it. There's still the teams, the strategists, the pit crew these hundreds and hundreds of people who are following the show around the world and there's an impact on them too and they have families and they have lives outside of F1 and it's it's not like another sport like the Premier League where it's all in one country. Obviously there's, there's World Cup matches or whatever in between and international matches but F1 is just constantly making its way around the world and as well as that, not in a very logical way sometimes as well because... One of the other things that is an issue coming from the size of the calendar is the actual organisation of it and how there's no real logical order to it. It's not like we get all the American races in a certain leg of the calendar. We just can seem to zigzag around the world in quite a chaotic manner. Exactly, and it must be awful just to hop and skip between time zones like that and never fully be able to get yourself back into the rhythm. Like I've just literally was sitting there while you were talking. Imagine on a on a personal on a, on a personal level, right? How many birthdays do you miss? If you've got a partner, if you've got kids, you've got family. How many of those moments are you missing because work's making you fly all the way around the world? I think a lot of people, you know, you work in nine to five in the office or you work night shifts or whatever, you you already notice that you give up a lot of that time to work. What happens when you're, you know, say for Christmas, sometimes the, the calendar doesn't finish in Abu Dhabi until mid-December. You've then got to come back 
unjetlag yourself, you've been working for an entire season, so you're absolutely shattered anyway, you're ready for a break, you've then got to get prepared for Christmas and everything, your kids are off school, you've still got to do your Christmas shopping, how do you, how do you deal with that as a person? And then you're right on the, on the logistical side, the, the teams must have tens, you know, of people sitting in offices going, oh my god, how are we going to get all of our kit from Azerbaijan to Miami, and then back to Italy, and then down to Monaco, or up to Monaco, you know, it's such a logistical challenge to get all that stuff done, and it's, we've talked about it before, you know, outside of the podcast, you know, it, it's definitely not good for the environment, but it can't be good for the people having to deal with that either, and having, having the mental stress of trying to figure out, how do I get this kit from Switzerland to Australia in time to be there and set up for the race? Yeah, on the logistics side, I mean, we've even seen this year that Haas have reduced the size of their pit wall for logistics reasons to make it easier to transport and to fit more on the trucks or whatever reason it is. They, I remember Steiner giving an interview and saying that there's just so much to consider moving about in F1. And yeah, it just... The way the calendar is structured to me doesn't make sense in terms of the logistics. It's very full on for the crew, like we've just said. But also, I think for me, the I don't want to say the biggest because the mental and physical strain on the teams is just as important in a way. But F1's making all these mission statements about the desire to go net zero by 2030. And yet we've got this calendar that has no clear order to it i mean it starts out okay so we start in bahrain and we go to Jeddah in saudi arabia and then over to australia but then that's where it all starts going a bit chaotic we come all the way back over to baku then all the way over to miami which is about a 16 hour flight from if you were to go straight from baku to miami and obviously we know that the drivers go home in between all that which is fair enough but as i mentioned when we go all the way over to america to miami we don't then do a leg of American races. We go to Miami and then we come back over to Europe and then later on in the season we'll be back over to America. And it's it feels to me that there's not been much thought put into the actual carbon footprint of the calendar. Yeah, from my point of view, the amount of races that we've got in the Americas this year, we should have Miami, which then leads straight into... Canada, or even I would I would argue swap those two around and have Canada first, so you just go and down. So at least in the same stretch of races, I would say you need Miami, Canada, then uh, the next one is Circuit of the Americas, then you've got Mexico, Brazil, and Las Vegas. That's seven races all on the same side of the world. And only one, two, three, four of them are next to each other in the list. Yeah, it that just sounds perfectly logical to me. And um, why would you not have all seven of them together to save the environmental impact if you are overtly saying we want to go net zero, we want to look into how we can reduce our footprint? And I know that there's other considerations like when the tracks are actually available for use and loads of other logistical considerations. But the way it is now, surely there's a better way. I know, like if you think about it now, we've we've come back from Baku, we went to Miami, we're now in, in Italy, so we go Italy to Spain, that makes sense. But then we're gonna go back to Canada. But we've just left North America. <laughs> to me, that just doesn't make any sense. Just put Spain next to Austria and, and Silverstone, and put the Americas together. Just, yeah, I, I don't... It doesn't make any sense to me. F1 said this year they were going to try and make it more contained and, and make sense more. They didn't, um, as far as I can tell. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. I mean, another point for me is that I'm starting to get really fed up of Formula 1 as a company, or as a group, saying that this year it's the largest calendar in history. We, we've heard that for years and years and years. Mm. I think, what was it, 2020, we were supposed to have 22 races, largest ever. We actually had 17, that was for COVID or not, I'll give you that one. 
2021, we were supposed to have 23 races, the most ever. We actually had 22. 2023, we're actually supposed to have... Sorry, 23 races in 2022. We actually had 22 races because China dropped out. This year is 23 races, and we were supposed to have China on top of that, which would have made it 24, but China dropped out, so now we've got 22. So we just keep getting this every year. It's the biggest ever. It's the biggest ever. Can you really say that it's been worth it for adding all this extra stress onto the teams for an extra four races? Because I think everyone was pretty happy with how the calendar was beforehand. Yeah, again, I do think this comes back to the whole concept of F1 as a show and like the, the whole, that phrase, the biggest ever, the biggest ever, what other sport does that matter in? You don't get football, rugby, whatever, saying we've added like 10 more fixtures because we want it to be the biggest season ever. Why? Yeah, just focus on what makes it great in the first place and surely... If, if you have less races, that means that each spot on the calendar is worth more money and it's more valuable to Formula One and to the promoters for each track because if there's only 19 slots available and one becomes available, you're going to pay more to be part of that because it's a, yeah, because it makes it more precious for that slot to become available and for everything to, to fit into place. So, I just don't really get it. I've never really understood the let's just keep adding races thing. Like, where does it stop? Um, say if next year we get China back, are we actually going to do 23, 24 races? You know, what would have happened if we still had Vietnam? We've still not got a race in Africa. If these keep adding on, where where is that going to go in the calendar? And, and eventually drivers are just going to say, you know what, I'm spending nearly 30 weekends a year just racing I can't do that anymore like they are still people in there they are high performing people but if anything that means they're more likely to fall off the cliff when mm. they hit the edge um yeah don't don't get it for me at all no I think it has got to a point where it's a bit of a mammoth and um if f1 really are serious about putting mental health first as one because that's something they're also quite outspoken about but also caring for the environment it needs to change i'm quite eager to see what the 2024 calendar is going to look like and whether they have taken any of the feedback from the teams and drivers and feedback from fans about concerns about the environment whether they've taken that into account at all and tried to make the calendar make a little bit more sense even if even if they're not going to go down the route of shortening the calendar, are they going to make it flow better so that there's not this zigzagging? My biggest fear is that F1 has boxed itself into a corner and when key markets become available, like Africa, like China, when they suddenly want a slot back on the calendar, my biggest fear is that we lose a really good historical race that can't afford to pay as much money to have these races come back and take their slot on the calendar. I, I just would be heartbroken to lose Spa or something like that or a Monza because they can afford to pay less money than China. That is my big fear. Mm. I think... Ultimately, F1 has to be watchable, doesn't it? And there's there's the business side of it. But you can't replace, in my opinion, you cannot replace tracks like Spa, like you're saying, in Monza, with a street circuit that's been put together solely to make money from F1. So ultimately, it's, it's going to boil down to, yeah, okay, well, it might make money in the short term to go with a different track, but are the fans going to love it? because the fans are the sport without people finding the sport entertaining is not going to work and it goes back to our conversation last episode about street circuits really new additions to the calendar should be about does this track have the wow factor that are going to make people go god i love formula one that was a fantastic race through a wheel to wheel all the way through and it even goes back to what we were talking about earlier is does 
overtake didn't necessarily mean it was a good race. Because for me, I'm less bothered about people just overtaking each other with DRS. I'd rather have less overtakes but more on-track battles. I think that's the thing that F1's sort of getting itself like tripped over on as well, is to keep going, oh yeah, we've made overtaking better, we've made overtaking better, but is the is the racing there, is the battling there? Like, racing for me isn't just cars going around on a, on a circuit following each other, it's about battling and those overtakes and strategy calls and all the things that we like about F1, just trying to amplify that as much as they can and picking circuits that make that easier and facilitate that. Which track is going to have a better overtaking opportunity? Does this track have too many tight corners that mean you're going to have to follow in a procession? Can you get three cars wide in this corner? And that's sort of the problem that I get with tracks like Baku, where... In the castle section, you're not going to get more than one car through there, so it tends to bunch everyone back up again. Whereas you get old school circuits where you can essentially you could follow side by side for pretty much the majority of the of the of the track. Um, I really just think that F1 needs to focus, like we said before, more on making good racing, and then people will come and see good racing rather than trying to make gimmicks and fads that people yes. are currently interested in but it's not that won't last forever what, what for a fad or a gimmick once people have seen it there's no reason for them to come back because they've already seen it what makes racing great is every year you go back to this track you get a different race i wouldn't say that miami this year was particularly different from miami last year mm. yeah it was just the same race just rehashed i think what it boils down to is going for quality over quantity and actually sustainability in so many different forms so entertainment in a sustainable way is this track just that we're thinking of adding is it just a fad or is it a track that people are going to want to come back to year after year sustainability for the teams and their like energy levels also the more races that you add to the calendar the more strain on the cars the more parts are needed that's another consideration for like overall impact of the championship and also regulations and then you could even say that maybe they're coming at this from the angle of more races means like the expansion of f1 but if you're a new team as well looking to join f1 and there's 23 races rather than 17 that's a huge added cost that a new team would have to consider a new entry so it's just are we becoming is the championship becoming more off put into a new team because it's just this absolute Goliath thing to try and enter as a new team? Yeah, um, we might do an episode on this in the future just on the specific regulations for the next generation of cars in 2026. But I, I think that you're totally right and that F1 has to worry about both sides now. Is Have we got the right circuits to make good racing? And do we have the right cars to make good racing? A little bit off topic from what I was talking about before, but I, I have said to you personally that I think F1 and its new engine rules for 2026 is sort of going down the wrong path because I, I, I try to think of the best way to describe this in a way that makes sense. The electric angle of racing is covered by Formula E. The endurance and hybrid side is covered by the World Endurance Championship and endurance racing. The top speed section is covered by IndyCar and the Indy 500 and oval racing. So really what F1 should be about is great racing with characterful cars that make you want to come back. There's a reason why everyone's favourite Formula 1 cars are the V10s, the V12s, the V8s, because they made that noise that got you involved and got you feeling something when you were there. Um, I, I genuinely think Formula 1 should should be going down the route of um, electricity's covered, hybrid's covered, top speed's covered by other people. Our thing is going to be sustainable fuel. We're going to have a zero carbon footprint for all the fuel and we're going to go back to having either a V8 or a V10, and it's going to sound amazing, um, and that's what's going to draw people in. And it goes back to, again, the point that we made earlier of quality over quantity. You don't need thousands of races in a season when 
people are queuing out the gates just to see these amazing cars that you can hear for miles around and that you, you know, you dream about as a child because you want to see them on track because how could anything possibly make that noise? You know, we've had this sort of generation of cars since 2014 and they, they just don't, for me, excite the world in the way that they used to or should do. And so F1 is overcompensating that by adding more tracks rather than focusing on what made them good in the first place. Yeah, I think this is on the topic of the fuel that you're speaking about. It's something that Vettel is really pushing for, isn't it? He's got a collection of F1 cars going back through different eras of the sport. And what he's been doing is working with his fuel supplier. Um, it's biofuel and putting this sustainable biofuel into his collection of cars and proving that it works with V10, V8 engines and just driving these cars around tracks and they sound incredible. And then you've also got the knowledge that they're much better for the environment than they would have been back in the day. And yeah, I personally love to see that in F1. I like the sound of the old engines. I obviously haven't been a fan since they were running, but when I see archive footage and footage of old races and stuff it just sounds so much better and I'd love to see one of those on track much more than I would like to see an electric hybrid being honest yeah my 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 last argument on that point is there's a reason why people go to concerts there's a reason why people go to the theater it's because they want to experience that noise that passion in person I don't feel like f1 currently does that it's like going to a concert but listening with the speakers turned down doesn't it just doesn't give you the same feeling as being in that stadium with the you know speakers blowing the roof off it, it just doesn't give you that feeling in f1 right now i think that is it's something that they're missing for sure but i just don't i don't see a way that it's going to change because they're so dead set on this we are hybrid we're the most efficient engines in the world doesn't matter how efficient you are if the the petrol that you're burning was inefficient in its creation. Mm. Yet again, Andrew, we've gone on a wonderful rant there. I don't regret any of it because I think everything we've said, yeah, things that we've rambled about before when we've playing the game and things like that. But to round up our view on the size of the calendar, what do you think your ideal amount of races would be in a year? I genuinely think back to the sort of 19 to 20 I'd say 20 if the 20th race was really good but at 19 was a good level where not every weekend had a race you could still go and have a social life but you caught every race because you were excited for the next one I don't feel there's enough of a gap between them now to really get hyped and excited so I'm going to say 19 to 20. Yeah that's exactly what I was going to say I was going to say we do not need more than 20 in my opinion I'm not sure where I sit below that. It could be anywhere between, say, like 18 to 20 for me, but I just don't feel we need more than that. Yeah, well, we'll see. F1 clearly has plans to go bigger, um, so we'll just have to see where that where that leads us and, and how we feel about it. I'm sure we'll let you know when it comes to it. Uh, we're not too shy on our feelings about uh, the size of the calendar. But anyway, we'll, we'll move on for now and we'll we'll move forward to round seven, which is our race preview for Monaco. Now, Monaco is going to be maybe a little bit different, I think, this year, um, because a lot of teams like Mercedes were planning to bring huge, almost B-spec car upgrades to uh, Imola, but Imola is no longer going ahead at the minute. So those upgrades are going to Monaco. So teams now have to make a decision. Do you put your brand new shiny parts on that have a huge potential to create basically instant bolt-on performance, especially on a circuit that requires so much downforce, on a track where you'd have to say, because it's so narrow and it's so enclosed, you've got a very good chance of destroying those parts the second you bring them to the track. Do you then, I don't know, say, Mercedes with their new front suspension mm. do you only run that in qualifying or in free practice three do you but then does the car feel totally different do you run it from free practice one and and potentially damage it before it even gets anywhere near qualifying or the race 
I what I don't know what you think is going to happen there. That is such a tough one, isn't it? I don't know what I would do in the position of the teams. I'm going to say that if I was Mercedes, they've not got heaps to lose by getting on with getting the upgrades on the car because the alternative, you know, they're not in contention for the championship right now. Why would you not just get on with it and try to keep pushing the car forward as much as physically possible? And that seems to be George Russell's ideology at Mercedes of just got to try things and I'd rather try things and sit tight with the car we've got. Um, so, yeah, I think they might push on, but I think they should go for it as early as possible in like FP1 if they can. Um, because like you said, the closer it gets to qualifying and you put in these upgrade parts on, I don't know if that's a sensible idea. Yeah, and I, I just wonder as well, I think it depends what your gap is to the teams around you. Like for a Red Bull, it doesn't make sense to build new parts on in Monaco because you're miles ahead of everyone else anyway. You just risk destroying those parts that could give you more performance later on down the line. If you're an Aston Martin, I don't think it makes much sense because you've still got a bit of a gap to the other teams around you. Your deficit was in high speed or top speed anyway. So you don't really need that low speed performance right now. But if you're a Mercedes or really a a McLaren, if you've got those parts, you kind of need to bolt them on because you need to close that gap to the car in front no matter what. So as soon as you get them, it's worth putting them on to try and close that gap. Even for um, an Alpha Tauri or a Williams, if you're at the bottom, how much do you have to lose when you could gain so much at Monaco? Yeah, I think McLaren and Mercedes, no-brainer. Give it a go, if it was me. My my all-encompassing F1 knowledge. Um, And if I was Red Bull, I would not. Because I think, like you said, they've just got such a gap to the rest of the field. They don't need to be taking risks like that. And I think they know that as well. They know it's a long championship. They know that if they get pole, even if the teams behind them have picked up a couple of tents, qualifying is the key to Monaco. Yeah, I mean, really, that that's the most there is to say about Monaco. If you've never seen Monaco before as a Grand Prix, there's two things. There's a lot of money in Monaco. And the race happens effectively on the Saturday because qualifying is absolutely king in Monaco. The only way you're ever really going to make an overtake in Monaco is by strategy um, or cars being damaged. Um, And even then, I would say having a damaged car doesn't even really mean that much in Monaco because the speeds are so low, you lose a less proportionate amount of performance I remember Daniel Ricciardo a couple of years back, I think it was maybe 2018, um, he won Monaco with no hybrid system left in the car. It absolutely broke, I mean, I think it was maybe a third of the way into the race, he had a fully functioning Sebastian Vettel behind him and it made absolutely no difference because there's no way to get past, especially with the way the cars are right now being so wide, it's just not really... I mean, it's amazing that the cars can fit around that track regardless, never mind trying to go wheel to wheel with each other. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think whoever qualifies on pole, effectively, unless you get some sort of strategy decision or you get held up in traffic or something, like which Bottas. has happened before. Exactly, yeah. Um, or you get a, a wheel nut locked on that you can't get off for <laughs> four days afterwards. Um, you, you really need a good qualifying position, which... For, for drivers who absolutely nail it on that one lap, fantastic. If you're more of a race guy, you're really going to have to hold out hope. Yeah, uh, it's a funny one for me, Monaco. I feel like my overall opinion of it has been a big roller coaster ride since I started watching F1. I initially didn't really like it because it is so determined by what goes on in qualifying on Saturday and there's like you said, not very much overtaking, unless you are Seb Vettel coming out of the pits in 2021 when he overtook Gasly, but then it wasn't shown on the live feed because they showed the stroll graphic instead, which still traumatises me. The TV direction in Monaco is a whole other topic that very much upsets me and Andrew. Um, But I can appreciate the amount of skill that's required at Monaco to keep lapping it, keep it so accurate and 
on these such fine margins not to end up in the wall. It's a different kind of challenge to other Grand Prix. It's maybe not so much about the overtakes as it is about the level of concentration and the stamina. But nonetheless, I just have to say it doesn't make for entertaining viewing, which I know isn't what F1's all about. But as a fan sat watching it on TV, it's just a bit of a, a flat one for me. Yeah, I think this year, Monaco for me is really a conflicting track in my head. I understand why it's on the calendar. I don't know particularly how I feel about it being on the calendar. I don't know how I would feel if it wasn't there. I kind of just accept the fact that Monaco almost needs to be there because it is, like I said at the start of the programme, the crown jewel it is the one that all the drivers want to win i feel like they would miss monaco being there and if that's what they love maybe i'm okay with having one race that i don't particularly love to get all that glitz and glam in f1 and the history of it you know this year is the 80th running of the monaco grand prix and it's got a whole history behind it you know 80 years of grand prix racing is a lot to just suddenly say, no, I'm not going to have it anymore. So I totally agree, it's not the most interesting race, but it's sort of grown on me a little bit as I get older and the more I watch F1 that actually I can't, I understand why it's there, even if I might not enjoy it the most. You know, it's, a, it's one of the, the three races that makes up um, Motorsport's Triple Crown, which is to win the Monaco Grand Prix, the Indy 500, and the 24-hour Le Mans. But there is a reason why drivers want to win this race, and it's because it's so difficult to do. All three of those races are notoriously difficult to win, and that's what makes them special, because you have to work hard for it, or you have to have had something happen to get it. You can't just really look into a win at Monaco. You have to have done something to put yourself in a position to get that win. Yeah. I completely agree actually that the more the longer I've been watching F1 the more it has grown on me like you said because especially when you watch the quali laps and stuff it does punish the drivers who just put it one centimeter out of place and when they show those close-ups at the like turns and you can see the wheels are like essentially brushing past the wall and we obviously had Leclerc in qualifying a couple of years back qualified on pole but in his final run he put it in the wall and then it meant he didn't end up starting from the front because he had car damage and uh, yeah it's even it's, Max has done it yeah Max has done it as well Max has crashed uh, Leclerc's done it nearly everyone has I mean Max I remember um yeah he, he crashed in the I think it was a swimming pool section um, seeing them come through there, you know, there's videos of, I think it's Kimi Raikkonen coming through, and the tyre, there is no gap between the tyre and the wall. Mm -hmm. They are almost, for all intents and purposes, one thing. They, the margins are that small. Imagine trying to drive your road car within maybe half a millimetre of a barrier. You know, it, it, is, it is crazy to see, and I feel like maybe it's one of those races that you just have to be there to fully appreciate, mm. but... We'll, we, maybe we'll have to see that one day. Yeah, I think maybe it would be a little more entertaining if the cars were a bit nimbler like they were back in the day and that's maybe what made it so special back then because the cars were narrower and lighter. But yeah, to me, I think there probably is still a place for it on the calendar. We'll see what happens this weekend. Yeah, I think even from a safety point of view as well, the track has come inwards as in away from the walls to give more space for uh, all the marshals and guys that need to be around the circuit to facilitate the racing whereas it used to literally just be streets that were closed off that there was no barriers there was nothing it was just streets now you can't do that anymore you need that safety aspect so that brings the track in and then the cars have gotten bigger and so you're sort of attacking it from both sides to yeah. really try and make a good race, um, how do you do that when you've got a bigger car and it's physically smaller track? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, let's round it off 
with a prediction. I reckon I know where this is going to end up, but go on, Andrew, what's your prediction for the Monaco Grand Prix result? I'm going to say Perez, because he won last year and he does like street circuits. And Verstappen maybe hasn't had the best start of the season he could have wanted. I'm then going to say Verstappen because he is very quick. And I'm then going to say Fernando. But if I was going to have a wild card option, I would say if anyone is going to win that isn't a Red Bull, it will be Fernando. Interesting. Interesting. I'm quite similar. So I think Perez might win this one because he's having such a good time on street circuits at the minute. I think there's a strong chance and he's done well in Monaco previously. So, yeah, I think it could be him for the win. And I'm a little bit torn then, but I'm going to save Verstappen P2 and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say Leclerc P3. I reckon he might pull something out of the bag. I think he's a very good, when he gets it right, he's a very good qualifier. And because it's not about top speed necessarily, maybe the Ferrari will perform a little better here. I'd be happy if he does him or science. I think Ferrari just need a couple of good weekends in a row to really now start to get that season rolling. It feels like they've just sort of been on the edge of performant and not. And I think they, I think it hit them really hard that they weren't as performant as they thought they were going to be on the level of Red Bull. And I think now they're just starting to hopefully try and get that traction. So I'd be happy with either of the Ferraris being on the podium. Mm. Well, we've got the same front two, but we'll report back and see which one of us was more correct with our idea of who's going to be third on the podium. But I think that wraps up this episode of Track Chat. Once again, thank you very much for listening to our lovely little rants about F1. We have so many more topics that we're excited to talk about, from regulations to safety to team politics. So if you do want to keep up to date with our latest ramblings, crazy ideas, Make sure you follow us on social media. We try to tweet as much as we can over the race weekends. So you can follow us on at track chat tweets on Twitter or track underscore chat on Instagram. And we'll see you next time.